0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Last Week in the Church. This is the signature, the showcase, the premiere weekly video, also the only one, brought to you by Crux. We are your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. And this is the show where we kind of raid the journalistic fridge. We're looking for stories that happened during the past week. They're kind of leftover. But we pull them out of the fridge, throw them into the skillet, sprinkle over some spice and our secret Crux brand sauce, and serve it up piping hot. Here's what we've got for you this week. We begin with the summit that wasn't. The Vatican dangles the prospect of an encounter between Pope Francis and Patriarch Kirill, head of the Russian Orthodox Church. But the Pope last week told an Argentine newspaper that it's off, not going to happen citing as the reason that Vatican diplomats told him that such a meeting could cause confusion. Mhm. We'll try to unpack the real reasons why the plug was pulled on the Pope and Patriarch encounter. Second, the summit that was Pope Francis this past week sat down for a friendly tete-a-tete with Prime Minister Viktor Orbán of Hungary, possibly the European leader with whom he has the widest range of disagreements and a man he actually snubbed when he went to Hungary just last year. So we'll try to figure out what was going on in that encounter as well. Then third, pinning it up, two small news items from last week underscore the importance to Catholic fortunes in the 21st century of what I have called the Pins Nations. And yes, I will explain what in God's name that's supposed to mean, And then finally, Liberation Day. Yesterday was the Festa della Liberazione, the the Festival of Liberation here in Italy, commemorating the resistance against fascism and German occupation during the Second World War. I will try to deliver a tribute to one Catholic priest who gave his life for the cause of freedom as part of that resistance. All that and more is waiting for you this week on Last Week in the Church. So please, please, for the love of God, stick around. All right, everybody, we are back. Happy Tuesday to you. We begin this week with the summit that wasn't. Basically, last week, you may recall, we discussed on this program, the news, first reported, reported by the Reuters News Agency, that there might be a historic encounter between Pope Francis and Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, in June. Basically, we know that Pope Francis is going to Lebanon in June. There was talk that at the back end of that trip, he would fly from Beirut to Oman in Jordan, and then from Oman, he would be choppered to Jerusalem where he and Kirill would meet. And planning had gone in to arranging that encounter. However, during the past week, the pope gave an interview to La Nacion, that is the newspaper of record in his native Argentina. The question of this meeting with Kirill came up. And he said, basically, that it's off. Not going to happen. And the reason he gave is that Vatican diplomats told him that such a meeting right now could be confusing. Now, here's the problem with that explanation. Pope Francis is hardly a pope who has shown himself to be averse to the possibility of confusion over the basically 10 years of his pontificate. Let's remember, for instance, that during his two synods on the family in 2014, 2015, where the big ticket issue was whether Catholics who were divorced and then civilly remarried, that is, they remarry outside the church, whether under some circumstances they ought to be admitted to communion. Now, the opposition to that said, you can't do it because if you do, it's going to create confusion about Catholic teaching on sexuality and marriage. Pope did it anyway in his controversial 2016 document, Amoris Letizia. I mean, after all, This is the Pope who, on his first foreign trip in 2013, over the summer, when he went to Brazil for World Youth Day, during a meeting with youth, actually told them to go home to their diocese and make a mess. Now, he used a phrase in Porteño, which is the Spanish dialect that they speak in Buenos Aires, and I am not going to try to recreate it here. But the gist was, you know, go home and shake things up. Even if it causes confusion, at least something is going to be happening. So, I mean, this is, this is a pope for whom, like, risking confusion in the name of being true to the gospel is basically a modus operandi. Further, in that same interview with La Nacion, Pope Francis said, I will do everything to try to stop this war. Well, you could ask, wouldn't meeting the orthodox hierarch who has been giving theological cover to Putin's war to ask him to stop? Wouldn't that be an example of trying everything? So what gives here? Because obviously the prospect of confusion by itself doesn't really answer the question. Well, I mean, listen, let me cut to the chase here. We don't really know what the actual reason was, but let me run through some possibilities for you. One is, from the very beginning, the Vatican and Pope Francis have been criticized for being overly deferential to Moscow. It's a fact that up to this point, Pope Francis still has not named Russia as the aggressor in this war, nor has he condemned by name Vladimir Putin. By the way, he addressed that criticism in the same La Nacion interview. He said that popes never name heads of state, never name whole nations, which he said the nation is superior to whoever happens to be in political charge at any given moment anyway. But all of that has created an impression that maybe the Vatican is trying too hard to placate Russia. Perhaps the prospect of a meeting between the Pope and Patriarch could have fed those impressions and the Vatican simply didn't want it. Here's another possibility. Maybe some of the people complaining about confusion as a result of a possible meeting between Francis and Kirill aren't just unnamed Vatican diplomats, maybe what they're doing is relaying what they are hearing from Ukrainians themselves, especially members of the thriving Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine, the largest of the Eastern churches in communion with Rome. Remember that those Catholics in Ukraine were incensed on Good Friday when during the Way of the Cross ritual, At one point, Pope Francis had a Ukrainian and a Russian woman carry the cross together. The Ukrainians argued that such a gesture of reconciliation is wildly premature because reconciliation implies repentance, and there's no indication the Russians have repented from the war. And so perhaps there was concern that a meeting with the Russian Orthodox Patriarch would be a bridge too far for those Ukrainian Catholics. We should also mention that there is a secular angle on all of this. Recently, a human rights watchdog group called Human Rights Without Borders, it's an analog to Doctors Without Borders, which is very respected, among other things, for its defense of religious freedom in Europe. This group called for Kirill to be indicted by the International Criminal Court for essentially connivance in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Maybe Pope Francis, and well, maybe Pope Francis's advisor said to him, you know, a photo op with a guy who may be about to face a criminal indictment for war crimes might not be the best idea. It's also possible that Pope Francis heard from his BFF, Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople, which is engaged, th- that is... Constantinople is engaged in a long-running struggle with Moscow for the soul of orthodoxy. Maybe he heard from them this wasn't such a hot idea. There is also another, even more cynical possibility, which is the Vatican never really intended to go through with this meeting. They simply dangled it in order to be able to take it away. And the point would be to underscore Kirill's growing isolation And in that sense, it would kind of be an ecclesiastical analog to the economic sanctions that secular governments have placed on Russia. Now, listen, let me confess openly, all of this is nothing more than speculation because we we don't really know. What we do know is that concern about confusion doesn't quite cut the ice in terms of an explanation for why this pope either zigged or zagged. We can hope that at some point in the not-too-distant future, Pope Francis will provide a fuller explanation. All right, we move now to a summit that did actually happen, but is kind of surprising, which is the Pope's meeting this past week with Prime Minister Viktor Orban of Hungary. Now, bear in mind, Orban, even though his Fidesz party, prides itself on its Catholic roots, and Hungary is, of course, a country with a rich Catholic history. Nevertheless, Orban's appeal is to the sort of conservative traditionalist Catholic crowd, the people that Pope Francis has had, well, to put it charitably, with whom he has had a rocky relationship since the beginning of his papacy. Orban stands for anti-immigration policies, very much at odds with the Pope's own social and political priorities. He's anti-EU, while the Pope is the winner of the Charlemagne Prize for promoting European integration, and on and on. I mean, relations between the Hungarian government and Francis's papacy are so bad that when Francis went to Hungary last year for the conclusion of a Eucharistic Congress, now admittedly, it was not a state trip. He was only there seven hours, but even so, he didn't even give Orbán a meeting. Like, the only thing he agreed to was a quick meet and greet before his mass began. So Orban was able to come up and shake the Pope's hand, but that was it. And it was widely considered a kind of gesture of disapproval by Pope Francis. By the way, during his homily at that mass, he also encouraged Hungarians to have an open arms policy to new arrivals, which is a a direct challenge. To the immigration policies of the Orban government. So, why was Francis sitting down for a 40 minute, you know, face to face and then posing for friendly photo ops with Orban afterwards uh, this past week? Well, the answer probably is that Hungary has been in the front line of those European nations receiving refugees from Ukraine. To date, their foreign ministry says they have received more than 600,000. Refugees from Ukraine and counting some of them are in transit to other European destinations, but some of them have declared an interest in staying in Hungary, and the Hungarian government apparently has indicated a willingness to contemplate that possibility. So Pope Francis presumably wanted to thank Orban for the receptivity of Hungary to these Ukrainian refugees, but further. Remember what I said earlier, Pope Francis has said that he will try everything to stop the war in Ukraine. What he knows is that Orban is about the only EU leader left who actually has a decent working relationship with Putin in Russia. When Orban was reelected in a kind of landslide on April 4th, he declared that he had not only defeated his political opposition in Hungary, But he had also defeated Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. And later that day, Putin called Orban to congratulate him. The two leaders had a friendly conversation. So Pope Francis undoubtedly thinks that Orban is a kind of pipeline to Putin. And by maintaining a a kind of line of communication with Orban indirectly, at least, he's also maintaining a line of communication with Putin. And so that perhaps helps explain the otherwise odd spectacle of these two figures who represent radically different visions for the future of Europe, wrapping one another in a warm, loving embrace this past week. All right, let's move on to the pins nations. Now, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. I love lists, okay? I love making lists. I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of baseball fan who will, like, Okay, give me your top five third baseman of all time. And I love the kind of arguments that ensue from questions like that. And so not long ago, I posed myself the question, for English-speaking Catholicism in particular, that is the parts of the world where English is a primary language, which countries are going to be most important in forging the future in the 21st century? And here's the answer I came up with. Bear in mind, this was a decade ago, okay? And the list I came up with was the Philippines, India, Nigeria, and South Korea. I called them the PINS nations. Now we're talking about collectively a pool of 144 million Catholics. There are 84 million Catholics in the Philippines, 30 million in Nigeria, 24 million in India, and 6 million in South Korea collectively that's a larger pool of catholics than one finds in the united states the uk ireland australia and new zealand now we are used to thinking of those countries as the pace setters in the english-speaking world but increasingly in the catholic church that just ain't the case and forget the population numbers for for a moment let's look at levels of faith and practice in places like the philippines and nigeria more than 80 percent of the catholic population goes to mass every sunday in the u.s the uk australia new zealand ireland that clearly is not the case so the trend lines move in opposite directions so the two news items from the past week that kind of buttress this analysis both of them have to do with the philippines one is that for the year 2020, which is the last year for which we have firm statistical data, the Philippines led the world in Catholic baptisms. They recorded more than 1.6 million baptisms. That includes infants and adults. And adult baptisms are usually used as an index of the missionary vitality of a church because generally this means converts to Catholicism from something else. That was more than you got in either Brazil or Mexico, which are the only two Catholic countries in the world with a larger Catholic population than the Philippines. So the Philippines finished in first place, indicating the dynamism of that that church. Also last week, Archbishop Romulo Valleus of Davao in the Philippines was reappointed as a member of the Vatican's Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments. Now, despite the clunky name, that's basically the Vatican Department that oversees liturgical policy. and Archbishop Palaeus is now a voting member of that congregation. And I think that, taken in tandem with the fact that Cardinal Luis Antonio Chito Tagle, of formerly the Archbishop of Manila is now the prefect of the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith, the Vatican's main missionary department, is an indication that the Filipino hierarchy is coming of age in terms of being a change maker, not just locally in the Philippines themselves, but globally in terms of the universal church. So my point is this that increasingly in the English-speaking realm, the future of the Catholic Church is going to belong to the pins and nations. Memo to American Catholics, I know we like to think we're the whole show, but let's face it, the 70 million Catholics in the United States represent just 6% of the global Catholic population. Put another way, 94% of the Catholics in the world aren't like us, And to think that American priorities, American concerns, American experiences can dictate terms in the Catholic Church of the 21st century is just a fantasy. In other words, wake up and smell the coffee. You've got two options in terms of thinking about the Catholic Church in the 21st century. You either think globally or you think dysfunctionally. I'm sorry, but those are the only two items on the menu. Finally, Liberation Day. So yesterday, April 25th, here in Italy, was the Festa della Liberazione, the the festival, the holiday of liberation. It's a national holiday in the country, and it commemorates the Italian resistance against fascism and against the, the German Nazis who occupied Italy from 1943 until the end of the Second World War. And that resistance was a major force in, in shaping Italian destiny in the middle of the, the 20th century. Now, unfortunately, over the years in Italy, the, the Festa della Liberazione has become politicized. It's, it's now seen largely as a holiday for the Italian left. The Italian left here loves to tout the role of the communists and socialists and other progressives in the resistance. Meanwhile, for the right, the idea of armed rebellion against the established order was for a long time uncomfortably close to like the Bolshevik revolution in the Soviet Union and other Soviet-style uprisings and other European nations, and they kind of stayed away from it. So the left has kind of had a monopoly, in a way, on the memory of the resistance, which is unfortunate because the resistance was a much bigger reality than just any particular political faction. Now, to sort of get in the spirit of Liberation Day here in Italy, my wife Elise and I on Sunday night, by the way, Elise is behind the camera right now recording this show, say hello Elise. Hello. Say hi to the nice people. You can't see her, but but she's here, I promise and thrilled to be able to say hello. Anyway, my wife, Elise, and I watched the classic Italian film, Roma Città Aperta, Rome Open City, which was made in 1945 and kind of celebrates the role of the resistance. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I had seen this film before, but I had never really looked into its backstory. But probably the hero of the film is this Catholic priest named, in the film, he's called Don Pietro. And I did a little internet research about the movie, and it turns out that that character is based on a real Italian priest named Don Giuseppe Morresini, who worked, actively collaborated with the resistance against the fascists and the Nazis, and who was executed as a result in 1944. Now, this, this is all fresh to me, but I have to say it feels deeply personal Because it turns out that Don Morosini's base of operations was a school where he was assisting children who had been relocated from conflict zones in Italy. And that school is just a stone's throw away from our house. It's in the neighborhood in Rome where we live. And the small square here in Rome named for Father Morosini is equally just a stone's throw from our house. So I mean, even though the guy died in 1944, I feel like he's a neighbor and and somebody, therefore, for whom I have a special attachment. Here's the Morissini story in a nutshell. He was born in a small town south of Rome. He was ordained in 1937 in the Cathedral of St. John Lateran. By the way, 1937 was the year in which Benito Mussolini proclaimed Italy's undying support for Adolf Hitler and the Thousand-Year Reich in Germany. At the beginning of the war, Morosini was assigned to be a military chaplain. By the way, he's a Vincentian priest, okay? In 1943, his order reassigned him to a school here in, the, in Rome, in the Della Vittoria neighborhood, where Elise and I live, to help these kids who had been brought up from places where fighting was going on. And initially, he he offered his services as a kind of spiritual counselor, sort of a chaplain to the Italian resistance. But very quickly, it became clear they didn't just need spiritual assistance. They needed material assistance. So he started helping supply intelligence to the resistance, even supplying arms and, and other provisions. Now, at one point, An official of the German Wehrmacht, that was the regular army, not the SS, who was having pangs of conscience about the occupation, provided some intelligence to Don Mornicini about troop movements and things like that. He passed it on to a cell of the resistance, but it turned out that the Gestapo had a mole in that resistance cell who reported that Don Mornicini had done that. And so on January 4th, 1944, he was arrested. He was taken to Rome's Regina Celi prison, where he was subject to repeated torture, beatings of the most unimaginable kind, try to force him to name other members of the resistance, which he consistently refused to do. A survivor from Regina Celi left behind a memory of seeing Don Morosini once saying that his swollen face had blood running down it like Christ on his way to his crucifixion. And he said that this guy said he began to weep upon seeing Don Morissini. Morissini tried to get him to laugh, tried to form a smile on his own face, but his lips actually began to bleed from the effort of doing that. This guy nevertheless said he saw a light in Morissini's eyes that was the light of faith that was still alive still vibrant. The Gestapo eventually decided to execute Morissini. On the way to his death, he was accompanied by the bishop who had ordained him back in 1937. And at one point, the bishop said to him, coraggio, the Italian word for courage, meaning stay strong. To which Morissini replied, according to the bishop's testimony, look, dying well isn't hard. What's hard is to live well. And those words, of course, have echoed. When the moment came, the SS ordered a, battali- a group of 12 Italian soldiers to execute Morosini. According to the report, 10 of these 12 Italian soldiers actually shot into the air or into the ground out of respect. They, they couldn't bring themselves to do it, which left Morosini wounded but not dead. So the SS officer in command had to take out his sidearm and go over and, and finish him off. Morosini, posthumously was awarded Italy's highest civilian honor. As I said, there's a square here, here in town named for him. And look, I know this is just one figure out of a countless number of people of faith, clerical or not, over the centuries who have given their lives for somebody else's freedom or, some, or, or for the cause of justice. I know that. This is just one story. And yet, I can't help but think, on a weekend in which we saw Vladimir Putin at an Easter midnight mass in Moscow, holding an Easter candle while his bombs rained down on the south and east of Ukraine, costing innocent civilians their lives, providing us with a reminder of the potential to abuse faith to justify the most horrific acts of violence, that it was providential that for Elise and I, Don Giuseppe Morissini, who embodies the capacity of faith to inspire the most remarkable acts of valor and self-sacrifice, that that legacy came into our lives. So Don Morissini, requiescat in pace and thank you. That is our show for this week. Thank you for watching. We will be here next Tuesday. In the meantime, please do keep reading Crux. That is cruxnow.com. And my charge to you over the next seven days is this. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Have a fantastic and blessed week. We will talk to you again soon.